Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. So today, Nikki, we're going to begin looking at the fulfillment of all the prophecies of God as the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. (laughs) And I always think of the Messiah when I hear those words. (laughs) In fact, preparing for this podcast, I kept having those Messiah choruses going through my head. But before we get into the text, I want to remind everyone that you can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, including on our former Adventist YouTube channel. And we'd love it if you give us a five-star review wherever you listen, or like and subscribe if you listen on YouTube. We also invite you to contact us at formeradventist at gmail.com and check out our website, proclamationmagazine.com. You can subscribe there to our weekly proclamation newsletter email, and you can find all of our links online to all of our online resources. You can also find a donate tab there to help support Life Assurance Ministries so we can continue to provide not only this podcast, but also all of our other resources, including the work that our colleague Debbie Buffon is doing in Portuguese for the people of Brazil. Now we're going to turn to the last part of Revelation 11. And I have to say, Nikki, that I don't remember these passages ever becoming as clear to me as they are this time that we're going through them. I've been so confused by Revelation over the years, (laughs) even though I've read it, thinking Mm -hmm. maybe now I'll get it, maybe now I'll get it. But finally, it's starting to hang together. Yeah, me too. So I have a question for you before we read our verses for the day. What did you think as an Adventist of the kingdom of God? What was the kingdom of God that Jesus kept saying was coming? And what is the kingdom of God that we're learning about in Revelation? How did you understand that word, kingdom, as an Adventist? So, in the New Testament context, when I heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, I thought of it as being strictly spiritual. Interesting. And that the kingdom of God would be all who place their faith in Jesus. And when he said the kingdom is here or is at hand, I believed this started when Jesus came. And I thought the idea that there would ever be a physical kingdom was just a misunderstanding on the Jews' part. I knew that they were waiting for their Messiah to come and establish a kingdom on earth because they had so many enemies and they believed that God was going to rescue them that way from Mm -hmm. their enemies. And that this was just a misapplication of the Old Testament, that they'd gotten it wrong. And really, they should have understood that Messiah was coming the way he did. And since they didn't accept that and they held on to this other kind of kingdom they were waiting for, that then they were cut off. God had no future plans for them because the real kingdom was was the church. That's really interesting. You said that so well and summarized all that I thought without being able to put it into such clear words. <laughs> yeah, I well, agree. Well, we did come from the same system. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's exactly what I thought, too. It was all spiritual, and those Jews were getting it wrong, and God had just cut them off. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I have to say, the topic of the kingdom and the fact that the Jews got that so wrong with the first coming of Messiah gave me a lot of anxiety about not fully understanding Adventist doctrine, because I thought, man, if those Jews who grew up learning Torah their whole life missed the Messiah— And I can't make sense of my prophets 
teachings and my remnant church's yeah. doctrine, what if I get it wrong? What if what if I'm deceived by the Antichrist? What yeah. if what if I'm just as ignorant as the Jews were who think that they're gonna have a kingdom one day? That is so interesting. You know, I have a memory. Oh, this was so early on after we came out of Adventism. It was it was very shortly after I became editor of Proclamation. So it must have been about the mid-2000s. I can't even remember what led up to this, but I remember getting a letter. It was in answer to a question that I had asked in a letter to one of the Christian ministries for Jews that exists out there. And I don't remember exactly which one. And I don't even remember the question I had asked, but it was something related to a letter we had gotten. But I remember the answer I got, and I remember how surprised I was. And it had been something about the kingdom. It had been something about realizing a kingdom, the Jews having a kingdom, the future for the Jews. And I was still very much of the idea that the new covenant undid everything that was promised to the Jews in the Old Testament and that there was a new program now that there was a church. Mm -hmm. And I remember this Jewish person had answered my question and had said, I don't think I can give you an answer that will completely make sense to you. Jews who believe in Jesus have a very different view of eschatology than most Christians do. And I remember reading that. I was sitting in the car. We'd opened the mail at the post office, and I was reading that in the car, and I remember thinking, what's different? How do they see it differently, and what is this difference? And you know, that answer that I got in that letter all those years ago, still rings in my mind. And as we've been doing this chapter, these verses for today, I've had that in my head and I've been thinking, I think I'm starting to understand what that Christian Jew meant. Mm -hmm. There's a whole different way of looking at these fulfillments than I had ever believed as an Adventist, certainly, or even in my very early days of believing in Jesus fully. Mm -hmm. So, I find that this is just very exciting to go through this book this time. I remember thinking that pre-tribulation rapture folks mm -hmm. were oversimplifying scripture. They just didn't want to believe that they were going to have to go through a hard time. You know, oh, right. We had accepted that that was our fate, but they couldn't, and they came up with this fanciful thing. Well, actually, all of the studying that we've done now, this different view that the Christian Jewish folks have, and the idea of being called up to be with the Lord before God pours His wrath out on the earth, it's rooted in very scholarly work yeah. and a very consistent, specific hermeneutic. It's not just, hey, this sounds good. Let's do this. <laughs> and I think that this view has been presented that way to a lot of people. Yeah. I think so too. And what I'm finding is that the way we're understanding these passages, Nikki, is not just like, oh, I think we could look at it like this. Mm -hmm. It's really rooted in the Old Testament. And I had never understood how thoroughly connected these passages in Revelation are to the Old Testament, to the prophecies of the Old Testament, including the minor prophets that I thought were basically dismissed in the church. Yeah. Or that the church inherited them. And it really didn't have anything to do with the actual first audience's understanding. Mm -hmm. So, that being said, we're going to look today at Revelation 11, 15 to 19. This is where the seventh 
trumpet sounds, the one that has been delayed by the interlude of chapters 10 and the first part of 11. And now we're going to see and hear the seventh trumpet. Which is also the third woe, right? It's the third woe. And this is really quite interesting. So, just before we read it, I will just recap the last couple of things that we've learned. In chapter 10, we had an interlude where we experienced John seeing an angel who was holding a little scroll, and he was asked to eat that little scroll and said it would be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And the way we understood that, based on previous passages in the Old Testament and the context of the New, and the context of the rest of Revelation, is that this scroll contained revelation that God was giving to John. He was told to go out and prophesy again, and the Word of God was going to be sweet in his mouth because it's the Word of God but it's going to be bitter in his stomach because he's going to see how much suffering is going to still come upon the world before the end of everything in the kingdom. So, that was chapter 10. Then last week, we looked at the two witnesses in Jerusalem and how different that looked from our Adventist understanding of them being the Old and the New Testaments. We saw that they're actually real people who are going to upset the world with their three-and-a-half-year witness of the risen Christ. They will be killed in the streets by the Antichrist, left unburied for three-and-a-half days, and suddenly the breath of God will come into them. They will rise. They will go up into heaven in a cloud, and Jerusalem will be shaken by a giant earthquake, and 7,000 people will die. So, Nikki, um, just before we started recording We were talking about this, and you reminded me how clearly this little scroll and the angel's revelation to John ties into what we're going to read today. Could you read that little passage from Revelation 10 and talk just a little bit about how that's going to tie in with what we're going to study? So, this is right after John heard those seven thunders, and he was about to write them down, and he was told not to, beginning in verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Wow. So today we're going to be reading about that seventh trumpet call and what mystery he's referring to that was revealed to the prophets. Go ahead and read that. So this is chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Hmm. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Oh, Nikki, this is amazing. So this is the seventh trumpet, which doesn't have a specific plague. It has information. It has a declaration. And this is the mystery of God, which is being fulfilled now. And I find that really interesting because last week we saw how the mystery of God is actually really explained in Paul's epistles. Ephesians describes the mystery of God as his eternal plan to save his elect and to bring us to life in Christ and to seat us in heavenly places with him. And the mystery is the church, the church and Christ in us. And part of that mystery, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1, is that he would bring all things into submission under him. Yes. And this is where we're seeing how that's going to happen. This declaration is that mystery is now complete. (laughs) And we're going to see from here on out into the rest of the book of Revelation, the events that are culminating in that actually being fulfilled completely in the kingdom. And using our historical grammatical hermeneutic, we're going to see from the grammar in the passage where this lands in our timeline of human history. Exactly. This grammatical historical method of interpretation is such a relief to me, if you want to say that, Mm -hmm. because it means I can read these words, I can see where these words are used in other places, I can believe that they mean what they say, and I don't have to try to reapply them to something that we can't even see here in Scripture. And of course, I am referring in large part to our past in Adventism. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to lead into our discussion with a little talk about where Adventism gets its unique worldview. And interestingly, in listening to S. Lewis Johnson expound on this particular passage of Scripture, he had four points that describe liberal Christianity. Now, I know there could be a lot of arguments about whether Adventism is part of liberal Christianity. Many people who are inside Adventism say, oh, no, we're very conservative. But on the other hand, Adventism does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And without the inerrancy of Scripture, then we don't have any firm foundation that can use a grammatical historical hermeneutic. Also, some people may say, well, Adventism really isn't part of liberal Christianity because it's not actually Christian, and I would say that's true. And yet, Adventism was formed in the mid-19th century, ostensibly using the Bible alone. That's what we were taught, right? But these were people who did not believe that the Bible necessarily meant what it said. They did not believe in biblical inerrancy. So, they had what has become known as a liberal view of the Bible, and that has led to the Adventist worldview. And I thought that was a really helpful thing to think about. I was listening to S. Lewis Johnson, and here are his four points, and it's fascinating to me to see how Adventism fits into them. His first point was that liberal Christianity has been guilty of a false estimation of human nature. And he talked about that a bit in his sermon, but I was listening to him describe that, and I was thinking, that's Adventism. Adventism doesn't believe humans are born depraved. It doesn't believe humans have an immaterial spirit, which is separate from the body, which is born dead in sin. 
Adventism believes humans have to overcome their genetic tendencies to sin, and until they perfectly obey Christ and reflect His righteousness, Jesus will not be able to return. So, in this way, Adventists do believe that they determine the time of Jesus' return, and their obedience prepares the way for His return. And that is a view that is typical in liberal Christianity, variations of it. I wouldn't say they all believe it in the identical way, but they morph the real definition of human nature. Liberal Christianity will not espouse depravity. The second error of Christian liberalism is a false expectation of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in history. Now, there are many ways that plays out in liberal Christianity that people will become better and better and bring in a state of perfection or glorification on this earth. But Adventism, while it doesn't have exactly that view, it does have a morphed view of the kingdom and of the millennial reign of Christ. And Adventism has a unique view that the millennium is in heaven with just the believing Sabbath keepers up there getting all (laughs) their questions, existential and otherwise, answered by God because, of course, He owes them answers. Mm -hmm. So, that is a unique view of Adventism, which does change the idea of the kingdom. The third error of Christian liberalism is not believing the Bible is inerrant. And by denying the inerrancy of Scripture, it denies the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And right there is Adventism as well. Because without believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, Adventism has been able to have a different Jesus than the Bible shows. Adventism has a fallible Jesus, a Jesus who gave up his omnipresence. Original Adventists were actually Arian, believing that Jesus had a beginning somewhere back in prehistory. The Bible never says that. The Bible shows us that Jesus is, I am Yahweh, Almighty God. But Adventists will deny that. And to this day, they deny that the Trinity shares substance. And finally, S. Lewis Johnson's fourth point of the errors of Christian liberal thinking is the secularization of life and truth. And he explained it this way. In this viewpoint, life is the arena for the triumph of man, not the arena for the glorification of God. And you know, Nikki, that just made me think of the great controversy. Hmm. God who limits his omniscience, who limits his omnipotence for the sake of our free will, that humans are ultimately going to help vindicate their creator. Mm -hmm. Who ever heard of such a thing? The creator, the sovereign God of the universe being vindicated by his creatures? That's just inside out and upside down. No, Adventism says humanity will ultimately obey God's law and vindicate God to the watching universe. And that is not the biblical view. God is sovereign. We are not. And we never vindicate God. God does not need vindicating by his creatures. He is God and all his creatures know it. So, this is another primary way that Adventism really fits into that slot of liberal thinking biblically. I just can't get used to hearing that we used to believe there were watching worlds. (laughs) Right? That's hard for me to admit now. I do wonder 
if there are Adventists out there who are keeping an eye on all of the recent information about UFOs and aliens and evidence of that, I wondered if they believe that there are aliens from these watching planets who are visiting us. Because I know apologist Jim Baber did a podcast on the Victorian trance woman. Yes. And in it, he shared that Ellen White, among other women who were women of the trance in the Victorian age, had visitors from other planets that told them they kept the Ten Commandments. And so they didn't have yes. sin on their planet. And I'm speculating now, but... It's just weird to me that we were a part of a system of thought that believed there were people watching us from other parts of the galaxy. That is a really great point, Nikki. That is a creepy thought. (laughs) And we did believe that. Mm -hmm. And you know, all to say, in the big picture, Adventism couldn't possibly have taught us the truth about Revelation because they didn't believe biblical truth about the nature of man, about the nature of Christ, about the nature of sin, or about the nature of salvation. How could they look at this book and believe that it is telling the absolute truth, that the words mean what the words say, and that they're connected to the Old Testament, which also meant what it said? Well, they can't. And that's why they can look at the chapter that we're looking at today, and they can say that this has to do with 1844. Yes. In fact, Ellen White had this amazing quote in The Great Controversy, 1988 version, page 433. And by the way, this is not the only quote where Ellen White talked about that tabernacle in heaven. In fact, it was kind of funny because I was printing this out for the podcast, and I selected the wrong thing at first when I selected print. And Richard came to me and said, did you know that you're printing 50 quotes from Ellen White? Oh, no. (laughs) I said, no, that's a mistake. Let's cut the print command. But There is more than one place where she talked about this, but since we are looking at Revelation 11, 19, where the tabernacle of God is displayed for everyone to see, I'm going to read what Ellen White said about it. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, Revelation 11, 19. The ark of God's testament is in the Holy of Holies, the second apartment of the sanctuary. In the ministration of the earthly tabernacle, which served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, this apartment was opened only upon the great day of atonement for the cleansing of the sanctuary. Therefore, the announcement that the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his testament was seen points to the opening of the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844, as Christ entered there to perform the closing work of the atonement. (laughs) And notice again the consistent Adventist teaching that the atonement was not finished at the cross. It's been going on in heaven. Mm -hmm. Those who by faith followed their great high priest as he entered upon his ministry in the most holy place beheld the ark of his testament. As they had studied the subject of the sanctuary, they had come to understand the Savior's change of ministration, and they saw that he was now officiating before the ark of God, pleading his blood in behalf of sinners. That's really heretical. Yeah, it's very creative, too. (laughs) Yes, and we'll see how wrong it is as we walk through this. It's interesting that they don't find a proof text in there for Orion. (laughs) You know, that is an interesting point. (laughs) That 
was central to our worldview. Yeah. Jesus is coming back from Orion. That's where the ark is. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus is coming back. And my goodness, they've made animated videos of that. We should do a reaction video. Yes, I think it's a great idea. (laughs) Well, Nikki, let's look at this passage now, beginning with verse 15, and walk through it. Verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's so much in here. There is. It's incredible how much correction we can get from just one verse. First of all, Dr. Gary Enrich pointed out in his word search teaching, Revelation number 28, that up until now, we very often would hear a loud voice from heaven, but now we have plural, we have plurality. There are many loud voices. These are the angelic beings in loud chorus, he said, who are proclaiming this. But one of the things that was so interesting about this is that it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And this is all the way at the seventh trumpet. Yes. So we have to figure out what is being said here, because when Jesus was walking the earth, he said, the kingdom is at hand. Yeah. So we need to talk a little bit about that word kingdom. I agree. And I had never thought before, going back and re-listening to Pastor Gary teach through this passage, I had actually not remembered everything he had said. It just hadn't registered with me the first time I heard it. But this idea of the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ is really significant. There are roots of this idea of the kingdom of God in Psalm 145, verses 10 to 13, where the psalmist says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Well, in this context, Nikki, what is the psalmist saying? What is God's kingdom that endures forever and throughout all generations? Well, this is David, so obviously before the cross, and he's speaking of the sovereignty of God. Yes, over not just the world, but the cosmos, mm-hmm. all those other planets and stars and galaxies, which, by the way, we have no reason to think there's any sentient beings living on them. There's nothing in the Bible about aliens keeping the Ten Commandments. So we see God ruling sovereignly even in David's present time. Yes. And that kingdom is not the same kingdom that John is talking about. John is actually mentioning the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of the Lord. Here, God's kingdom is sovereign over everything. So we see the kingdom in the New Testament being discussed. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means it's not present yet, but it's imminent. Yes. And in the Lord's prayer, we were taught to pray your kingdom come. This is while Jesus was here that we're praying your kingdom come. 
So it doesn't speak of the kingdom the same way David does. David's speaking of that sovereign rule. Jesus is speaking of something different. So when we look at the kingdom of this world, we have verses like 1 John 5, 19 that says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's post-cross. That's post-cross. So the kingdom of this world, in a sense, is unbelieving humanity under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 6, by the way, with the rulers and authorities who are our spiritual battle, (laughs) our real spiritual battle. So yes, and Pastor Gary talked about this idea of the kingdom of heaven is at hand and said it's one of the most misused verses in the Bible when it's Mm -hmm. translated in the KJV. The King James Version says, the kingdom of God is in you or is within Mm -hmm. you. This text has been picked up by a lot of people in the New Age movement, and it's been used to say, look within you. Your truth is within you. Your heart will show you the right thing to do. And he said, that is a mistranslation. He said, the King James Version is not using the most accurate translation from the latest manuscripts. And he says he believes that the modern translations are far more accurate, and they don't say the kingdom of God is in you. They say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, what was he referring to? Well, Jesus, the king, was present. Exactly. He was here. He's in their midst. He is among you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the king. He is the king of the kingdom, and he is present, and he's here at that time, and he's saying that the kingdom is at hand. It doesn't say that the people he's talking to are in the kingdom or that the kingdom is in them. And at the same time, when Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. Exactly. So it's important to see the context and to remember the first audience. And I think a lot of us read these things, we have traditional understandings in our head, and we don't realize that some of these words are being applied in different ways, depending on who's saying them when they were said, and who the first audience was. And already we have looked at the fact that your kingdom in Psalm 145 was David pre-cross talking about God's sovereign rule over all things. The kingdom of heaven is at hand when Jesus is on earth, is speaking of himself bringing the presence of God's kingdom among them, but they're not in it yet. So Gary talked about this as the already and not yet of scripture. We see it in different places. We see this in our new nature. We're made new now, but we're not yet freed from sinning. Yes. We have life now. We've been born again now if we have believed, but we don't have our resurrection bodies yet. Exactly. So there's an already and not yet to the kingdom as well. And it was interesting, Pastor Gary also pointed out another caution. 
This kingdom talk gets confusing among those who are of the prosperity gospel as well, because they're using passages of scripture that talk about the kingdom to say that all of the fullness of the kingdom blessings are ours even now, so that we should be healthy, we should be wealthy, we should be succeeding, we shouldn't have enemies, our wounds should be healed, on and on. They're misappropriating scripture because they're not understanding the kingdom and the uses of the word kingdom. That is such a great point. I did love the way Gary put it. He said, the prosperity gospel takes the not yet verses and makes them already verses. Mm -hmm. There was one more thing in relationship to this idea of kingdom that Gary said. He said, the number one reason the Orthodox Jews don't believe in our Messiah or theirs is because there's this mystery, this not yet period, the already but not yet, because the Jews were anticipating a conquering king who would come in and deliver them from Rome and establish the Jewish kingdom with a king on the throne as promised. And they didn't understand, and some of them still don't, that there was a first part of this, an already part where the king rules in the hearts of those who believe him and a not yet period, which is still to come. And it's that not yet period that is being announced here in Revelation 11. That's so exciting because this looks like this is the gap in Daniel. This is that gap year. The already is that gap year. It's the mysterious church age. Yes. And the not yet is still to come Mm -hmm. and being announced. Mm -hmm. I always love it when teachers bring out what's behind the original language. And Pastor Gary pointed out that this verse that says, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ is written in the future aorist of the Greek. And this tense is used of past tense to describe something in the future because it is so certain. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Romans 8 that talks about those who he saves, he glorified. Yes, as if it had already fully happened. Mm-hmm. You know, one other way that, and, I, and I'm only going to bring this up because of my past Adventism, and I think a lot of people who have been Adventist can be helped by thinking about it this way, this already but not yet. I see this as being partially illustrated by what you said earlier, Nikki, about the fact that when we are born again, we are already saved, but not yet in terms that our bodies are not yet glorified. And I want to say, this is the inverse of the way Adam and Eve fell. When they ate the fruit in Genesis 3, they died that day as God said they would. And in Adventism, we were taught, no, they're still walking around. They just began to die. But God said they would die that day. And they did. Their spirits, their immaterial spirits were disconnected from the life of God and their spirits died. That's why they had shame, they hid, they blamed, but their bodies continued to live for many years. And it's the inverse of that when we are born again. Our spirits come to life, but our still mortal bodies will be glorified later. So there's an already but not yet factor involved in the whole thing. And if we look at our lives honestly and look at these passages of Scripture, we'll see that's true. Mm -hmm. I have really come to love the 24 elders. (laughs) 
(laughs) So verse 16 says, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And Pastor Gary came full stop at the end of verse 17 and pointed out something awesome that I had never seen before. First of all, we see Lord God Almighty, which emphasizes his might and his power. But then he pointed out, where else, he said, have you seen who is and who was? And the room fell silent because we all thought of the verses that talk about God, who Mm -hmm. was and who is and who is to come. He pointed out from Revelation chapter 1, 4, that we see it there. We see it in verse 8, in Revelation 4, verse 8. But here in chapter eleven seventeen, and then again in sixteen five, we're not going to see who is to come. That's right. We're going to see who was and who is. And he pointed out that that's because the future becomes present in the text. We're now at the seventh trumpet. Yes. We're at the end of all these things. And so he is come. He's here as these are written. It's describing his presence in his return, his kingdom on earth. The fact that the text says that the kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, we see that he's begun to reign at this point. That's right. And this is back to that era's tense that you were describing. He has begun to reign. And even though we're going to see how all the details play out in the next very short period of time that culminates in the kingdom, it has already begun. This is the moment. This is the moment where the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's no longer the kingdom of the world under the reign of Satan. This is the moment where it becomes ruled over by Christ and Satan's power is broken. And again, that is reinforced by what they say next. In verse 18, they say, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is a reference back to Psalm 2. Yes, and again, I'm hearing the Messiah in my head, (laughs) the bass aria. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? (laughs) I think a quick look at Psalm 2 is helpful. And you can read it yourselves. You can go to Psalm 2. It's only 12 verses, but it can be roughly divided into four sections. And in the first section, Psalm 2, 1 to 3, we read about the nations rebelling against God, and they plot to tear apart the fetters of the Lord and of His anointed. And that's where verse 18 here in Revelation 11 is. The nations were enraged. And then in Psalm 2, verses 3 to 5, God speaks. He laughs at the nations and he holds them in derision. Isn't that an amazing word? That is like the ultimate of scorn. And God's answer to them is, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. No one can withstand the king that I am establishing on Zion. And then Psalm 2 verses 6 to 9 He switches the person he's addressing, and God speaks to the king, who is his son. And he says, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. 
Nikki, Jesus hasn't reigned like that yet. No. He is our king in terms of he is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord who has conquered death. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father, but he hasn't ruled over the nations with a rod of iron yet. And God says his king is going to do that. And then the last section of Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12, God says, be warned. He warns the nations, and he actually says, kiss the sun, lest you perish. Isn't that interesting? Kiss the sun in the Old Testament. There was nothing yet revealed about Jesus, the Son of God, in a direct way. That's amazing. Kiss the Son, lest you perish. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And once again, Old Testament, David is telling us that the Son has wrath that will be kindled. And we're to take refuge in the one whose wrath will be kindled. We have safety in Him. So, this is all a reference in a brief phrase to this whole psalm. So, I just encourage all of you to go back and read Psalm 2 and then come back and look at Revelation 11 and see the amazing way God is fulfilling what He said through David all those centuries and millennia ago. Doesn't it take you to Daniel 2 in your head as well? Yes. (laughs) It's amazing. With the image and the stone cut out without hands crashing into the feet of that image that represented all the world empires and becoming a world nation itself, mm-hmm. a kingdom. In Revelation eleven eighteen, John then continues and says, your wrath came. It's time for the nations to be judged. And then God, I have set my king on my holy hill. And now Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in the fullest sense. God is going to crush the rebellion of the nations, and the kingdom is becoming the kingdom of Christ. Now, there's three things that this verse tells us for which the time has come. The first, for the dead to be judged, and this seems to be the unbelieving dead. The second is for the rewarding of your servants, and the third is for destroying the destroyers of the earth. A phrase which interestingly is used of the Antichrist and the beast and all those related to him in chapter 19. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. This is where we're going. This is like you've gotten on a train here. The destination is just ahead and we're not getting off that train. We're ending up here with what's happening in 19 and 20. That's one of the things that has been so fascinating to learn about the book of Revelation. As an Adventist, I believed that everything was out of order. Yeah. But what we're actually seeing as we read through the book is that we have these overarching announcements of what's going to be detailed later. Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing here again. We have this overarching announcement, and these things are going to be fleshed out for us, especially in chapter 20. That's true. So finally, we come to verse 19. Now, Nikki, do you mind reading verse 19 again? Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay, here we have our proof text for 1844. (laughs) (laughs) It's so obvious, isn't it? (laughs) And you know, Nikki, we have both experience this with people coming out of Adventism. It's like, well, what about that? What about that text? Doesn't that mean the Ten Commandments are eternal? They're in heaven. We're all going to have to keep them. 
And I admit, I hadn't actually paid a lot of attention to this text as an Adventist. And I had to, you know, scramble and go back and try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But now, having read that passage in The Great Controversy and having seen this here in context, it's like, oh my goodness, that idea can only come from the dark side, because that's not what this is saying. I want to start with a little tiny quote from the S. Lewis Johnson sermon on this particular passage. And he said, the temple of God opened in heaven was the ultimate restoration of perfect access to God. This was the sign of it. And it was the sign of the presence of the Lord God among the children of Israel. That ark in the most holy place represented in symbolic form, the presence of the Lord and his commitment to the promises of the word of God. So let's talk about that a little bit. When we look at this, this can't be 1844. This is something that we've never seen on earth. On earth, the most holy place was hidden from sight, right? Yeah. There was a veil. Mm -hmm. Nobody could look at it except the high priest once a year and then only with blood. But here John is seeing wide open the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. But it's not just the Ark of the Covenant. It's accompanied with what... I loved how Pastor Gary called it, and I guess this is actually a theological term. I feel like I get a certain amount of seminary instruction when I listen to Gary. Yeah. (laughs) This is called a storm theophany. Now, what's a theophany? It's a manifestation of sorts of God. Exactly. And apparently, storm theophanies are a feature in Scripture. There's more than one place where we find storm theophanies representing God's judgment, His holiness, His presence, and don't mess with Him because He is the righteous judge. So, what are some places where we see storm theophanies besides here in Revelation eleven nineteen? Well, first of all, we see it at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. But then we also see it in the book of Revelation earlier in the seventh seal of chapter 8, and we'll see it again at the seventh bowl of chapter 16. Am I right in understanding that this is sort of a close-up look of something that we've already been told about earlier in the letter? Exactly. So, it's the same moment. It's the end of all things. It's the culmination of these judgments. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're just looking at it almost like with a stronger and stronger magnifying glass as we go through the letter. So I want to talk through some ways that we know that this is not about keeping the law and the seventh day Sabbath. Okay. Because that's how Adventists interpret this. Which you have to yank it completely out of its context to do because we've just seen that this is at the end of all things when Christ is reigning and all of the nations are subject to him. Exactly. So, let's just start with this. No Israelite was ever to access the presence of God through obedience to the law, right? Right. There was never an Israelite who kept the law perfectly and was able to finally look at that Shekinah glory. Even the high priest couldn't without blood. He had to go before it with blood and with a rope tied around his ankle in case he died Mm -hmm. in the presence of the Lord, and they could pull him out. Now, a second thing, this can't be talking about the church, because the instructions for the church in all of the New Testament, in all the epistles that Paul wrote to the church, 
in Peter, there's no reference to temple imagery. The temple is never part of the new covenant, except to say that believers are now individually and collectively a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the Old Testament temple. That's not with the Ark of the Covenant. The church is something new. Jesus has fulfilled all of the shadows of the law, which includes that whole temple and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Hebrews does refer to the temple, but Hebrews is unique in itself because it's written to believing Jews. And the purpose of Hebrews is not to say, oh, you know, keep the law, but think of it this way. Hebrews is saying, Jesus has given us a new covenant. The law was fulfilled in him. Leave the temple. Leave the city. Chapter 13 of Hebrews. Leave the city. Go outside to Jesus, who was crucified on the only altar that we worship from, and that is the cross where his blood was shed. The temple is no longer for you. And shortly after Hebrews was written, the temple was destroyed. So there is no New Testament temple imagery for the church. The church is worshiping Jesus who has fulfilled all those shadows. And finally, the signs of God's judgment are seen in this visible most holy place in verse 19. Now, this is really significant because the ark is a symbol of all the shadows of the Messiah that God had given Israel. Those who believe and trust in his fulfillment of all those shadows are saved, but those who don't believe in him will be judged by the law, even as Jesus said to the Jews. And I think this is so interesting. In John 5, 45 to 47, Jesus said to those Pharisees, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we learn from Jesus himself that it is Moses who will condemn the unbelieving Jews. Those who keep the law, as Galatians 4 says, have fallen from grace, and the words of that very law will condemn them ultimately because they have not believed in the one who fulfilled that law. So here, in summary for this passage of the seventh trumpet, where we see the beginning of the end, God is reminding all of us that his supreme command is to believe the Son. And just the fact that this passage references Psalm 2, where before the cross, David reminded us to kiss the Son, lest his wrath kill us. The supreme sin is blasphemy of the Spirit's revelation of the Messiah and rejection of God's Son. The seventh trumpet reveals that the last events of our age have begun And when that trumpet sounds, the next chapters which follow are going to come quickly, and as we read them, they will be rich in symbolism. The symbols of chapters 12 and 13 are borrowed from the book of Daniel, and we're going to take a couple of weeks to go back. I know we've done our podcast series through Daniel, but we're going to go back and look at chapter 2 and chapter 7 just to remind us all and to cement it in our own minds and (laughs) see how Daniel connects with this part of Revelation. But the overarching discovery I've made as I've been going through this part of Revelation is that these books, 
Revelation and Daniel are not random. They're not up to individuals to decide how they're going to interpret them. If we use a consistent hermeneutic, the grammatical historical method, understanding what these words would have meant to the first audience and seeing how they connect with the words between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if we really take the words seriously, Revelation explains how the big events of Daniel will take place. These words that we're reading are describing the days of the end, and we will take our time and see how John explains the bigger picture of Daniel's revelations. And I think the thing I most want to be clear about is this. If this is confusing, if there's anything about this that seems frightening or vague, don't worry. (laughs) We all came from a background that confused and manipulated the text of Scripture. And it takes time to undo that and to allow the Holy Spirit to implant the reality of the Word deeply in our minds. And if you have not understood the core message of the Bible, that we are born dead in sin, that the Lord Jesus took human flesh, God the Son, unable to sin, perfect, eternal, and righteous, took human flesh so he could take our imputed sin into himself and die a human death on the cross, experiencing the wrath of God and making full payment for our sin, that he died, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised, and that he broke the curse of sin for us, for you. If you've not trusted and believed that, then I ask you to go back And look at the book of John, see who Jesus is, see what he did, and recognize that you were born dead in sin and that Jesus came to save you, to give you life, to cause you to pass from death to life so that you never need to live under God's wrath and condemnation, and that when all of these final events take place, you will be safe. You do not need to worry because you are hidden with Christ in God, if you have trusted the Son. Join us next week as we go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.